take your Bibles tonight and turn to Gospel of Luke. The Blessed Life, we started that last week. We looked at Mary and what it meant to have the blessed life for her. And we're going to take a look at Simeon tonight. Time Magazine ran an article a few years ago. And the title of it was, Why Waiting Actually Makes You Happy. The opening line of the article said, Wait to know the sec- Want to know the secret of happiness? Wait for it. Um, the article was all about those who are trying to make a point that experiences bring more happiness into your life than purchases, the things that you can buy. Um, they did a survey of 2,000 people, and uh, they were enrolled in this scientific project. You can actually look at the results at trackyourhappiness.org. Um, but throughout the day, people were on their sm- sm- uh, smartphones, and throughout the day, they asked people when they got off their conversations whether they, what they were feeling like at the moment. And over a number of days with 2,000 different people, they found out that those who were planning experiences like once-in-a-lifetime vacations or family gatherings or reunions ended up being very much more happy than those who had been planning to buy a new car or some sort of purchase like that. They also found out, as they did another research, they said that, believe it or not, that waiting for an experience made you happier than waiting for a purchase. And they said that they interviewed people that were standing in line for over hours to get into a concert. And, and they said that they interviewed them, and then they interviewed and monitored the behavior of people that were waiting in line to buy gadgets or stuff, or watch out, on Good Black Fridays. They said that their behavior was far worse, and they were far less happy waiting in those lines. And the article said, you have to really know what's worth the wait. Luke's gospel is framed by three brief biological sketches of people that I term this way, waiting for happiness. Um, Two of them, as we've read, are in the infancy narratives. That's at the beginning about Jesus' birth. And we know their names, Simeon, and one we're not looking at tonight is Anna. The other one is Joseph of Arimathea, which is at the end of the Passion narrative. And those two at the beginning and the one at the end frames out Luke's gospel. And what they have in common and why they frame it out is they all share the same verb in all three instances. And it's the verb that says, or is translated, wait for or look for expectantly. I'll read them to you. The one about Simeon in our passage says, waiting for the consolation of Israel chapter 2, which is our text tonight, and we're going to read verses 25 all the way through 38. I'm sorry, yes, 38, got that right. The second one is in chapter uh, 38, chapter 2, verse 38, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The third one is looking for the kingdom of God, and it describes what these people are doing or what their lives are all about. 
Um, basically, if you put them together, waiting for consolation, it doesn't mean waiting for God to be nice to you. If you read the book of Isaiah, um, chapter 40, verses 1 through 3, and a host of other places, comfort, consolation always refers to the promise of God's fulfillment of his word that the Messiah would come. And comfort and consolation means that he would come and save them. That's the word redemption of Jerusalem, same thing. That God would restore the kingdom, same thing. These saints of God are spending their lives looking eagerly and with great expectation that God would send the Messiah and that would be the source of their happiness. They're waiting on an experience. And the experience is that Jesus would come, although they wouldn't know that it was him. Um, Now, let me tell you this. In their life circumstances while they're waiting, they are not given happy situations. They are oppressed by Rome. They are considered slaves by them. The vast majority of Israelites in Jesus' day were dirt poor, including Joseph and Mary, who were poorest of the poor. They had difficult financial hardships on a number of levels. They were all waiting for happiness to come to them. Maybe that's you. I can tell you it's a lot of people I talk to waiting for happiness, not presently experiencing it, waiting and hoping it will come. And not everybody is waiting for Jesus to find it. Um, A lot of people think that they might find it if they could find a husband or a wife, or they could find it if they could find a cure to the health problems, the chronic ones at times that they face. If they could find an answer to their loneliness or the anxiety or the depression that constantly goes on in their lives. See, they're trying to find it, but instead they end up getting relational struggles and financial uncertainty and often accompanying it with spiritual discouragement. But there's nonetheless looking and waiting for an experience of happiness. All three, I'm glad to say, that that frame out Luke's gospel found the happiness that they were waiting for in Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. Whether it's at the beginning of Jesus' life, in the infancy narrative, or the passion end of Jesus' life, here's what's not debatable about these texts. That Jesus is the center of what they're looking for. And i got to tell you tonight, and it sounds so simple and obvious, but I can tell you this, To live it and experience it is more profound than you could ever imagine. And that is this, that Jesus is the center of true and lasting happiness. If you want to find it, and what you can't find it in anyone or anything else, you can only find it in him. And you'll only find it in finding that happiness in Jesus and who he is and what he's done and the promises that he fulfills. He alone, quote the article, is worth the wait. Jesus is the consolation of Israel. Jesus is the redemption of Jerusalem. Jesus is the kingdom of God, and he is the source of our blessedness. If we want to have the blessed life, like Mary we saw last week, Simeon, we'll see him use that term again. Next time we talk together, we'll see the Beatitudes. If you want that kind of experience, you'll not find it in a plan, you'll not find it in a pleasure, but you will find it in a person. And that person is none other than Christ. So tonight we're going to unpack this in the words that Simeon tells us. We're going to look at tonight, and I want you to see it carefully because it's two sides of the same coin. The blessed life centered in Jesus, 
will have two things. It always has two aspects. And I want to take a look at each one of them in these few minutes. The first one is, in verses 25 to 32, is deliverance. When Jesus comes into your life, the first thing he brings is deliverance. That's part of the blessed life. Verse 25 says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Same Hebrew word, Simon, Simon Peter, Simeon, same thing. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the, the parents brought the, in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and, here's the, and blessed God and said, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for your glory, and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon was not a priest like Zacharias in chapter 1. He is not a member of the Sanhedrin, which is Joseph of Arimathea at the end of the book, which frames it out. He's a layperson. Most likely, his name is Simeon because everyone in that day uh, was naming their children after the sons of Judas Maccabeus, who led the revolt about 100 years earlier that gave them a little bit of freedom from Antiochus Epiphanes and the Syrians at that day. He was giving them freedom. So everyone wanted to have that freedom back now that the Romans had taken it from them. And so, so to express that hopefulness and expectation that they were waiting for, many families would name their children after biblical heroes that were deliverers. The Maccabeans were the intertestamental pillar, but they also, Jesus' name is the name Yeshua or Joshua who led the conquest. He was a leader. I mean, obviously that was from God, but a lot of people, Jesus' name was not uncommon like you might think. There were a lot of Jesuses. There's a lot, there's a number of them in the New Testament. Um, his name was very popular because of what everybody was waiting for. Their lives were miserable. They were unhappy because of the oppression and they wanted to have that happiness back, and they were waiting for it in a deliverer. Simeon's name means God has heard. And surely Simeon had been praying to God that he would send the Messiah. In fact, he had a revelation from God through the Holy Spirit that he would live long enough to see God's salvation in person himself. And so certainly God had heard Simeon's prayer and was sending the consolation of Israel. And as he's waiting expectantly, what kind of guy is he? He's not a pastor. He's not, he, he is a, a lay person, we would call him today. And in fact, here's the thing. He would be completely anonymous, and we would never know anything about him except for 10 verses in the Gospel of Luke. Other than those 10 verses... We would never know about him. And so what do you think, if there's only one chance to talk about someone, what would you think they would put on? Not any exploits that he did. Wasn't any acts of mercy. He performed no mirac miraculous things. He didn't preach a great sermon. People weren't converted to him because of him. You know, the Bible wants us to pick this guy who's waiting for happiness in the Messiah. That he is, look at the text, verse 25. He is righteous and devout. That's a 
important description because the people in the early part of Luke's gospel in the infancy narrative are always talking about them, number one, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and number two, righteous. See, he is righteous and devout. Zacharias and Elizabeth 1.6 were righteous and blameless. Joseph of Arimathea, at the end of the book, he was righteous and good. Simeon is righteous and devout. Why? Because these people are Sadiq. It's the Hebrew word for righteousness. It meant that they were not only orthodox in what they believed, but they practiced orthopraxy, I should say. They did it. They obeyed the law. And if you can look in our text, what describes into our passage, leaning into it, is the little phrase, the law, four different times. When Mary and Joseph came to the temple to do all the things that needed to be done, her purification, Jesus' dedication, his commitment as the firstborn, and all those things that had to be done, they kept the Bible. These were people... We would say today, who went to church, they went to all the services, they read their Bible, they were obedient, they were exemplary, could we say, believers at that time. And I want you to know this, listen, what you're waiting for to bring you happiness will change your life. See, the only thing we know about him, we don't know about a wife, we don't know about children, his job, what he, none of, you know what we know about? His character. All we know about him is his high level of expectation that was only equaled by his high level of commitment to God. He was righteous and devout. His allegiance was obvious that God was first in his life. That's what we know about him. And I can tell you this. Why is it important that we're talking about happiness? Because where you're finding it and where you're looking to get it will influence how you live your life every day. That's what we know about Simeon. The only thing we really know him about what kind of Jesus or God follower at that point, what he really is. That's what we know about him. Can I tell you this? And that's what happiness is all about. The number one thing that marks people who find their happiness in Jesus is the kind of person that they are. It's not marked by the position they have. He was a lay person. We don't know anything about much else in his whole life. But here we know this. That being committed to looking for the Messiah and finding happiness in that made a difference in how he lived his life. The question for us is, does it for us? Let's ask this. If we had 10 verses to encapsulate your life and ask you, hey, here you get 10 verses to talk about who you are, what would they say? I have been very disappointed at a lot of funerals that I've been to. Many of them lost, some of them saved, and that they rehearse with testimonies with people who stand up and say things about someone, and I'll have to say it nicely, that the things they talk about in 10 verses for them are incredibly trivial compared to what matters most. And I go away from a lot of funerals saying, God forbid that people talk 10 minutes total as a group about my life and think that I was about Mountain Dew. <laughs> right? Or bacon, right, James? Can I tell you this? That's what we know about Simeon. And you know why? Because you know what he was looking for to find happiness, the real blessed life? It was in God and all that he was. You know why he's like that? 
because the Bible says, listen to this, three times, 25, 26, 27, in three verses, the Holy, the Holy Spirit was in him, controlling him. It was upon him. It was moving in him three times, three times. It showed him the revelation about him not dying. It led him to the temple that day three times. Now, that means a lot because there are five people in the first two chapters that the Holy Spirit is upon them working. John the baptizer, Mary herself, Elizabeth, Zacharias, and Simeon. Nobody gets more than one mention of the Holy Spirit being on them than Simeon. They all get one mention. He gets three because even though this guy, quote-unquote, was a nobody anonymous, God said that he made a promise to him that you will be alive until the Lord's Christ comes. It affected who he was. It affected what he desired and what he lived for. He lived to see the Christ because his happiness was Jesus-centered. He, it was determined the Holy Spirit guided where he went. See, all, who he is, what he desired, where he went, where he spent his time, all of that was controlled by what his expectation, what he really looked for, what he really wanted in life. And the day came, verse 28, Simeon's waiting is over. It's a beautiful verse. And can you imagine the culmination of years of this waiting? He took him up in his arms, and there it is, first one, blessed God. Now, now I want you to notice these, these verses are obviously set in two different sections. It doesn't say it if you're using the ESV, but the very first verse, can you mark it down? 25 says, now there, but really the word there is, should be italicized because it's not in, it's the word behold. It should say, now behold, and then there was a man. And that's important because it marks off, because there's a second behold. If you look down, it says in verse 34, behold, Simeon says, he's going to talk to you about two very crucial things. The first one is the positive side of the blessed life, and that is, see, Jesus delivers. And that day, when he's standing there, he doesn't just get to see Jesus. Listen to this. He gets to pick him up and hold him in his arms. See, he's holding happiness. He's holding the source of joy. He's holding the king and the new king. He's holding the redemption of Israel. He's holding the consolation of them in his hands. It must have blown his mind and his heart all at once. Because that's how engaged he was in placing all of his hopes in the coming Messiah. He didn't just get to see him, he's holding him. So the first bracket, if I could say it this way, is verse 28, he blesses. See, he blesses God. And we've said already, the blessed life is someone who gets a blessing in the scriptures in Luke, and always gives a blessing. They don't always just keep it in. It's not something they absorb. It's not about just receiving it. They're always giving it back. And so he's been given a blessing that he gets to stay alive until he sees Jesus, and now he's going to bless God, and he's going to give it back. And so the Bible says in 29 through 31, watch, depart in peace. This is the Latin Vulgate, the Nunc Dimittis, if you read a special Bible, a liturgy Bible. You'll see that it's on there. And it literally is the two Latin words. And we would say today in our modern vernacular, you can be dismissed. It was almost, the word almost gives you the idea that Simeon was standing at a post. And it was his job to go to the temple and be a, a person who demonstrated that 
we're still looking for the Messiah. We haven't given up hope, and we're looking for God to come and save us, and we're still holding on to those promises because God keeps his word. And when he holds Jesus in his arms that day, he finished his job. He doesn't need to go to that post and work that job anymore because he holds Jesus in his hands. Now watch and how big it is. Because the verse says, if you look at verse number 30, he said, I'm sorry, verse 29, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, listen, to this, that you have prepared. And the word is the idea of this is the last step of redemptive history. All the things, God, you have put in line, all the way from all the way from the garden, all the way to here through Abraham, everything. He says, you know what? You prepared it all. And, and look what Simeon says. And I get to be the last little piece. And I get to hold Jesus in my arms. And he says, God, thank you for all the history, all the promises. And God, although it took thousands of years for it to happen, your word never failed. Can, let me tell you, find happiness in that. Find your happiness this Christmas. And this Thanksgiving, give God thanks because he keeps his word. He doesn't just keep it for Mary or Simeon. He keeps it for all of us. And no matter what your situation is and how much you're struggling to find happiness in all that you're doing, can I tell you this? Our God is in control of every part of history, every detail of it. To the point where he says, verse 31, they have you, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, plural. And the next verse tells us what that means. Not only has God worked it out that the Messiah finally has come and he's fulfilled it and he's our salvation, but here's what blows their mind. It's for Jews and Gentiles both. A light to the Gentiles and glory for the people of Israel. Oh, see, Mary and Joseph, the next verse, they stood in awe of those words, nor could they ever have thought that the deliverer would be someone for all the world. Now, that's the good part. <laughs> that's the part we're all going like, yeah, I love the blessed life like that. I, 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 that's true happiness. When the, all the good things that you've been waiting for so long come your way and your prayers are answered and your life is all great and you end up and it's all, see, that's how it ought to be, Pastor Walker. That, I'm, I lo- that's the part I'm looking for. It's only part of it. You see, Jesus comes into your life and he saves you. He delivers you. But that's not all Simeon says. See, he says another blessing. He gives another blessing. Can you look at it? Because he doesn't just, number one, first aspect, bring deliverance. Number two, he brings division. And the Bible says in verse 33, and his father and mother marveled at what had been said about him. Second time, bracket, Simeon blessed them, meaning Mary and Joseph, said to his mother, Second, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. So when Jesus comes into your life, write it down. He doesn't just come as a savior. He comes as a surgeon because he comes with a sword. Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke 17? He said to them in verse, I think it's 1731, he says, Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? I did not. No, I tell you, he says. 
Division. That's what he came to bring. Division. That's what the sword is for. And it's not, by the way, in the original language, it's not my Cairo, which is the little sword that you had by your side. It was the long, broad sword in sweeping battle that was two-edged, the big, huge sword that did all kinds of damage to the enemy. That's the sword he's using here. See, when Jesus comes into your life, and maybe you remember when you first got saved how this is true. See, it brings the vision. What is Simeon saying? He's saying that Jesus polarizes people. He's saying that Jesus divides people. Remember the very hard-to-hear passage in Matthew 10 where Jesus says, I didn't come on earth to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And he says this, and the enemies that you have will be enemies of your household. And I came to separate fathers from children and mothers from daughters and family members. He says, I came to separate them. And if you don't hold on to me and love me more than father, sister, mother, remember he says, you're not worthy of me. You see, when Jesus comes into someone's life, he brings the blessed life. And it's deliverance. And you've got freedom and all the great things that go with it. But he also says, I bring not only deliverance, I bring division. See, there is no uncertainty about Jesus' claims. See, he doesn't allow you to be in between when he comes into your life. And you'll see that it was in Israel. See, there's going to be separation in Israel. He said there'll be no national in between. There's no family in between, Matthew 10. There's no individual in between because it's going to pierce her heart. It doesn't matter what level you're on, individual, group, family, national. If you invite Jesus into your life, if you seek to make him the source of your happiness, see, you cannot be left in neutral. He leaves no one in the middle, Jesus doesn't. He is the cause of rising for some and falling for other. Have you seen it? I have. I had a kid in my youth group. Um, when she was 16 years old, she got saved. And her parents were totally against it. And so she came to youth group, asked me one day, and said, what do I do? My parents would like me to wait until I'm 18, gradu- graduate on my own, and then I can make my own religious decisions. Should I wait? I said, absolutely not. I said, this is what Jesus does. He polarizes people. I said, you should, you should get baptized because we have to obey God rather than people when, he act, when it's act of obedience. And she did, and it worked out. But can I tell you, it's not easy when you make choices at 16 like that. It's not easy. Have you, do you have people in your family? Are you the only Christian? It polarizes, doesn't it? See, it's for the rising of some people. And it's for the falling of others because there is no neutrality. It is a love test. When Jesus comes into your life, it does. If, he's, if you don't see him as more worthy than all other relationships, including your family, which you're closest to, perhaps, he says, then you're not worthy of me. It's basically Jesus' claims that caused the problem, that he said he was God, that he was king, that he was Lord. And if that's true, and it is, you have to submit to him. You have to surrender him. There is no casuality about it. It's either his authority or your autonomy. It's either he's your Savior and Lord, or he's not. And it's hard to ask Jesus into your life, desiring happiness, knowing he'll be your Savior and your surgeon. The sword, that's what Simeon says. See, it's a call to allegiance to Jesus, knowing it will bring conflict. There's only two images in the text. 
One of them is a stone because he says you'll rise and fall when you run into it. It's a stumbling block, we might say, New Testament term. See, it's the stone that people trip over, the stone of offense, the rock of offense that the religious leaders couldn't get past. And then the other image is a sword. It pierces. And all throughout Luke's gospel, read it for yourself, the sword divides people almost in every story in the book. The Pharisee and the street woman. One receives, one rejects. The Pharisee and the tax collector. The one who thinks he's self-righteous and the other one beats his chest. Whether it's Jews or Gentiles, Roman centurions believe, but Jewish religious leaders do not. The self-righteous versus the righteous. And all throughout Luke's story, it's the sword of Jesus sifting through people's souls, cutting through, getting to the reality of who they really are. And you could not be too far to say that Christianity is a way of the sword. It really is. It divides people. And it also, listen, it divides in people. Because here's what it says of Mary, that it'll pierce your soul too. I don't know all that that means. I don't know whether it was... The fact that she was said that she was pregnant illegitimately and lived with that her whole life because Jesus was called the son of fornication in John's gospel. Did she have to live that down and never did? And all the suffering emotionally and how she was turned away from people, maybe that was part of it. Maybe the fact that she had to submit to Jesus and she never fully comprehended all that he was and the confusion it brought. One time she's standing out there and her brothers, his brothers and Jesus' mother come to get him because they thought he was mad. That's exactly what the words in the Bible are. And he says, your brother and sisters and mother are out here. And he says, here's my brother, sisters and mother. I don't know how she took that. That here's the one who raised him, but the one he calls really his mother are the people who follow him. That must have been hard words to swallow. How about standing next to the cross and watching your son die, not knowing why it was necessary because of who he was? Oh, see, here's what's true of God's children. The blessed life that we have has outer battles and inner battles. See, it doesn't just separate on the outside, peoples. Oh, it separates on the inside about where you are in your heart. It is truly fair to say, I wrote in my notes, that if you love Jesus and have him at the center of your life, you will have a sword run through you at some point in your life. Can I tell you this? There is an absolutely crucial lesson to teach ourselves and our kids. Our kids up front need to know that when you follow Jesus and you find him to be the center of your happiness and you build your life around him and what you're waiting for is him, it will not all be deliverance. There will be division. There will be choices they have to make and they will maybe the only ones to do them and they're the only ones who won't dress that way, talk that way, laugh at those things, believe those morals... We have to teach our children that they cannot be surprised when they feel the sword. It can't be because it is part and partial about what it is to be a part of Jesus' kingdom. There will always be a cost. And new kingdom peace never comes unless new kingdom conflict enters first. There will always be conflict first in our lives. The old 
Puritan writer J.C. Ryle said, a true child of God is known not only for inner warfare, but inner peace at the same time. That's the blessed life. The blessed life is not because we never have battles, that we don't have to make difficult choices, that we won't experience pain and suffering and loss when we follow Jesus and find him as our happiness. No, it's that we can find those inner battles and yet have inner peace. Oh, see, that's the blessed life. That's the two blessings that Simeon's talking about. Oh, the deliverance of the Messiah, he's come, I'm holding on to him. But I can tell you this, there are difficult roads ahead, he's saying. And if you hold on to Jesus long enough, there'll be a sword for you too. That's the expectation of the blessed life. You still want it? Let's pray. Ah, Father, help us. Help us to look at the words of Simeon and the life that he lived and the expectation he had and the desires that he only could find fulfilled in Jesus. May that be true for us and for our children. Oh, First Peter tells us, don't be surprised by the fiery trials. It might as well say, don't be surprised about the sword that will be pointed at you. Oh, Lord, may we see you as infinitely valuable. May we see your value and worth far above anyone or anything in this life. May it influence and impact and completely alter our values, our morals, our choices, our day-to-day decisions. May we see that. May we rejoice and embrace it and teach our children to do so. Lord, we live in a time where what we thought never would happen might be closer to happening than ever before, that it will be a price that we pay to stay true to you. Oh, Father, may the sword come, and may we stand true at our post like Simeon and continue to bless the Lord. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.